Haunted by Painted Teeth, Chapter 2, Regret Like Acid. You and the other members of your unit who were taken will need to be retrained over the next couple of months, the woman told Seventeen, standing from her seat. Come, I'll show you the compound and where you'll be living. Seventeen nodded, her head still swimming with all that she'd learned. She'd been told that everything would be explained to her, but she still had so many questions. The woman had asked how old she was, but hadn't offered an answer when Seventeen had been unable to say. And that was just one of so many examples. Maybe in time, things would become clearer. She could only hope. The misery was already starting to chew away at her. She followed the woman out of the interrogation room and down a marble-floored hallway, crystal chandeliers dangling from the high ceiling. Ornately framed portraits lined the walls, and she caught their distasteful stares, shying away from their gazes after one spat at her. The woman, walking just ahead, didn't seem to notice. The hallway opened into a large entryway, where a wide set of stairs waited, their steps covered in plush emerald green carpeting. Seventeen tried to hide her shock. This was a military compound? It looked more like an expensive hotel. The woman gestured to the right, and Seventeen shifted her attention to a pair of open doors. This is the dining room, she said, and Seventeen peered through the doorway to see four long tables stretching across the expansive room. They were already complete with dishes, silverware, and green cloth napkins, and the seats were upholstered in that same green fabric. Death Eaters must like the color green. The woman turned and wordlessly began ascending the grand staircase, not checking to see if Seventeen was following. After a final look at the dining room, she jogged to catch up with the woman. More portraits lined the walls of the staircase, and she tried not to notice their cruel faces, shriveled up in disgust as she passed. Maybe they were like that to everyone? They walked up two flights of the staircase, and Seventeen struggled to keep up with the woman's long-legged strides. By the time they reached what she assumed was the third floor of the building, Seventeen was panting and trying to hide her gulps of air. The woman didn't pause at the landing, just turned right and continued her path. She finally came to a hall in front of a door and pushed it open. Inside was a modest bedroom, a bed, a small table beside it, and an armoire. It was bland, devoid of any decorations, the bed fitted with a simple white spread and no throw pillows. Compared to the uncontrolled opulence of the rest of the compound, she was nearly surprised to see such a wan room. But perhaps the decadence was meant only for the grand halls and not for small bedrooms but fit for soldiers. This is your room, the woman offered, opening the door further. Seventeen took a careful step inside. You'll find training clothes in the dresser. Everything should fit. Seventeen's jaw tightened at the thought. Were these her clothes from before her captivity? Would they bring back even a hint of her memories? Curiously, she walked to the armoire and tugged open the door. The disappointment hit her before she even knew why. Because in her gut, she knew that these had not been her clothes. There was no reason to assume it, but she just knew. She ran a hand along the black fabrics, finding them almost silky beneath her fingertips. They were some wicking material, and Seventeen could guess that they had a fair amount of protection spells cast upon them from how she could feel the magic thrum into her skin. The thought popped into her head suddenly. I have a wand, don't I? She turned to find the woman watching her from the doorway. 
Her expression was guarded, and Seventeen abruptly wondered if perhaps she had known this woman before. They couldn't have been friends, not with how even her behavior had been. Could they have been enemies? Was that coldness lying beneath her careful eyes a well-practiced hatred? You will be given a wand at your training sessions. Until you are properly trained, you will not be allowed to use it outside of that time. She couldn't hide her sigh. She longed to hold a wand, to feel magic coursing through her body. Maybe then she would remember something. Anything. The woman cleared her throat, drawing Seventeen's attention back to her tight face. I'll leave you. Dinner is in thirty minutes. Someone will knock on your door to collect you. The woman's hand gripped the knob of the door, ready to close it, and a wave of panic surged in Seventeen's throat. For some reason that she could not name, she did not want to be left alone. Wait, she called, before the door could close. The woman paused, eyeing her. What's your name? Those green eyes stared her down. Maxine Barlow, but you may call me Barlow, she replied after a moment. Then she closed the door with a soft click, leaving Seventeen standing in the middle of the room in front of an open set of shelves. And there was one thought that made her head ache. Maxine Barlow is a name, not a number. Unsure of what to do with herself in the time before dinner, Seventeen found herself looking further through the clothes. Her current clothes were ripped, and had they not already been black, she was sure they would have been stained with dirt or blood. Self-consciously, she checked that the door was locked, and then slipped off the t-shirt, abandoning it in a crumple on the floor. In its place, she tugged a thin, long-sleeved top over her head, almost shivering from how nice it felt against her skin. As she changed out her bottoms, she felt a nagging discomfort over the idea that she was putting clean clothes on a dirty body. But she hadn't been shown the bathroom, and she'd felt that there had been an unspoken instruction not to leave the room until dinner. She thought, then, of dinner, and her stomach audibly grumbled in the silence of her bedroom. She had nobody to be embarrassed in front of, but still she hugged her arms around her abdomen to get the noise to quiet. It did nothing of the sort. The next twenty-seven minutes were passed, with Seventeen laying on the clean white sheets, staring up at the ceiling. She arranged her curls out around her head in a halo and pondered extensively about herself, asked herself questions that she could not answer, reached her fingertips up to her face and felt the contours of her jaw, her nose, her lips, struggling to form a mental picture of herself. Of course, the room did not come equipped with a mirror. Tugged down her new leggings and explored every inch of skin of her legs and feet, looking for anything that could tell her who she was before. And just like before, when she'd examined her hands and her arms, she found nothing helpful. There was a small scar on her left knee, but as she traced it with her index finger, she could not supply a memory for how she'd gotten it. With no clock in the room and no way to sense how long it had been, her leggings were still at her ankles when a knock came from her door. She scrambled off of the bed, pulling the pants up hurriedly, and when she flung the door open, her cheeks were hot as if she'd been caught doing something nefarious. Her eyes met a girl whose red hair was only a shade brighter than Seventeen's face was sure to be. She must have looked insane, because the girl's brown eyes widened. Hello, she said. Dinner. Seventeen nodded and stepped out into the hallway, closing her door behind her. She hoped that later on she'd be able to tell which room was hers, but that was not a problem to deal with now. The girl gave her a tentative smile. You're Seventeen? the girl asked, as they began walking towards the staircase she'd come up with Barlow. Seventeen was unable to hide her confusion. How did you know? Did, did we know each other? The uncertainty was dizzying. 
to be faced with the person and be unsure if you had a history with them, if you'd done things to them, if they'd done things to you, if you'd laughed together, cried together, screamed at one another. The girl's smile widened. I'm sure that we did, but I don't remember. Then she pointed to Seventeen's neck. Our tattoos are on our arms and our necks. Seventeen's hand reached up to the skin, expecting it to feel different if there was truly a tattoo there, but every inch of it was just as smooth as the rest. Still, she trusted the other girl was telling the truth. Her eyes flitted back to the girl, who brushed her ginger hair from her freckled shoulder to reveal her own tattoo. The number 23 was tattooed there, in the same way that she now knew the number 17 marred her own skin. I haven't been able to see a mirror, 17 replied clumsily hoping it would explain her lack of knowledge at her own appearance. I'll show you the bathroom after dinner, 23 replied, and they made their way down the grand staircase. Voices echoed off the marble and grew louder as they descended. When they reached the bottom landing, she found the source of the noise. A small group of adults, all in black clothing, were huddled together at the entrance to the dining room. As she and 23 grew closer, their conversation died, and the adults eyed them with unreadable stares. Again, Seventeen couldn't help but wonder if she'd known them before. Badly, she wanted to ask them questions about herself, but Twenty-Three kept walking past them, so Seventeen just lowered her head and followed her all the way to the end of the farthest table in the dining room, settling into the seat next to the other girl. "'I came to earlier today,' Twenty-Three said, answering a question that Seventeen's nerves had kept her from asking. "'I assume you only just woke.' Seventeen nodded and tried to ignore the grumbling in her stomach." Do you also not remember anything? Twenty-three met her gaze, and behind her eyes, there was the promise of allyship, of shared experience. There are some things, basic things, that I remember, but not my name, my age, or anything else remotely useful. Me too, Seventeen replied quickly, relief coloring the words. It's driving me mental, she confided and from the way that Twenty-Three's back relaxed into the chair beside her, she got the sense that the other girl felt the same way. They barely told me anything earlier, Twenty-Three said, her voice dropping into a hushed whisper. They basically just said that my memory had been wiped, I'd been kidnapped by the Order, that I was a soldier, then dropped me in my room. Seventeen nodded quickly. Same. I'm so confused, and I'm itching to get my hands on a wand or somebody who knew me before. There was a pause while Twenty-Three thought about her words. We must have known each other. If we were both kidnapped together, right? We would have been in the same unit? Seventeen's stomach sank at the idea of this. She was conversing with this girl who she'd likely known and more than likely been friends with. And now, they were strangers. I think so, she murmured. As they talked, more people entered the dining room, filling seats at all the tables until they could no longer talk without being overheard by anyone else. Seventeen knew there was nothing wrong with what they were talking about, but the conversation died all the same, as if they were exchanging secrets. A group of four filed into the dining room, all wearing the same training clothes that she and Twenty-Three sported, various numbers tattooed on their necks. They must have spotted her and Twenty-Three, because suddenly the four were headed in the direction of their table and sliding into the seats around them. Hello, Seventeen ventured unsure of whether these new companions had also been kidnapped or if they were expecting her to know who they were. One of the boys smiled at her, his hand reaching up to swipe his brown curly hair out of his forehead. I guess we don't have to bother with names, he said in reply. Without meaning for it to, Seventeen's hand went for her neck. He pretended not to see.
The six of them were quiet, and Seventeen took the opportunity to glance at each of their necks. The boy she'd said hello to was Nineteen, and the girl next to him, whose blonde waves cascaded across her shoulders, almost obscuring her number, was Twelve. Next to Twelve was Eight, a boy with shaggy blonde hair who offered her a large-toothed smile shyly. And then across from her was Six, who Seventeen studied to wonder if the girl's dark, bushy hair resembled her own. Seventeen longed to make conversation, if not just have something to do, but those that sat around her seemed stunned into silence by their situation. From the way they stared at their own hands and plates, Seventeen was sure they'd all had their memories wiped as well, so she settled on letting her eyes wander the room. At another table, she found another silent group of people with numbers on their necks, but aside from her group and theirs, none of the other occupants of the room were tattooed in that way. Instead, she could see a different kind of tattoo on some of their forearms. It peeked out from under the robes of a few in the room, but none had the tattoo fully exposed for her to see what it was. Her eyes passed the faces seated at the tables, hoping for an ounce of familiarity with any of them, but there was nothing, until her gaze landed on him. It wasn't because he was familiar, no. It was because he was looking at her, too. Her eyes slid past him, and then retraced back to his face once her brain caught up with her senses. He didn't break his stare, which sent a jolt through her body. His eyes were an intense, silvery blue, and his hair was a shade of blonde so light that it could pass for white. A scowl hardened his pale face after a moment, and she blinked in surprise, her forehead tugging together in confusion. An unease rolled through her body like a bad case of cramps. Just then, Twenty-three said something, and she was forcibly pulled from her reverie. What? She stammered, meeting the gaze of the redhead. Blimey, you were out of it, she said with a smile. Barlow just came over here and said we were going to have our first training after dinner. Maybe you'll get your hands on a wand. Seventeen swallowed and tried to feel as excited at the prospect as she would have been a mere two minutes ago. But her eyes swept back to where she'd seen the man and instead found air. He was gone. Within a few minutes, plates and plates of food appeared in front of them, and, with the dinner as a social lubricant, their group began to chat in between mouthfuls of creamy mashed potatoes and bites of some roasted meat. Seventeen found herself ravenous and could hardly contribute to the conversation, though she did attempt to listen carefully and get a feel for the other's personalities. Nineteen, the one who'd quipped back to her greeting when he'd sat at the table, was the loudest of the bunch, an obvious extrovert. Twenty-three made easy jokes back to him, and Seventeen began to wonder if her new companion would prefer Nineteen's humor to her own silence. They discussed the grandiosity of the compound, and Seventeen was able to throw in a remark about the prevalence of the color green, which the others agreed with. The blonde girl, Twelve, spoke in a dreamy tone, comparing the shade to Barlow's eyes, who it seemed they'd all had to debrief with. Seventeen thought back to her time with the woman in that small interrogation room, focusing on how her eyes had bored into Seventeen's while she fired questions at her, and realized that Twelve was quite right. They had no pasts to discuss and no shared memories, but the group of six somehow managed to talk all throughout the meal. I wonder what training is going to be like, Eight, the blonde boy murmured, before practically inhaling a bite of food. They'll probably have to test all of us to see where our magical abilities are at, replied Six, the girl with the bushy hair. Seventeen wouldn't admit to thinking it, but she hoped that her curls looked better than Six's. The way the girl's hair fanned out from her head like an animal's nest made her pat her own locks down, 
dragging her fingers across the curls in an attempt to brush out anything that might have been stuck in them. To her horror, she pulled out a leaf, which she hid in her palm and then let fall to the floor once her hand was out of view. Twenty-three's rust-colored brows furrowed as she held her fork in the air between bites. Won't they already know where we're at from before we were taken? she asked. Maybe some of our magical abilities disappeared with our memories, Seventeen muttered, before she could stop herself, the sobering thought popping into her head like a rain cloud. Nobody in the group seemed to have an adequate response. That was until Nineteen caught her eyes with a grin plastered on his lips. Well, I'm fairly certain I'm better than all of you, he joked, and the lighthearted banter returned. The newbies are here, came a sing-song voice from behind Draco, but he didn't have to turn to see who it was. Blaze stepped into view and wiggled his eyebrows the way he used to whenever Pansy Parkinson or Daphne Greengrass were nearby in the Slytherin common room. Are you excited to see Granger? Only Draco didn't smile the way he used to, back when he had childish giddiness and innocence on his side. Use the numbers, Sabini. If they hear their names, I'll have to obliviate them again. He muttered quietly, letting his scowl harden his face. But Blaze's grin only widened. Fine. Are you excited to see Seventeen? Why the hell do you think I care so much about her? I should be asking you if you're excited to see Twelve, he replied, using the number name for Luna Lovegood. Draco rolled his eyes at Blaze's immediate change in expression, and continued into the dining room, his friend right at his heels. He doubted Blaze actually had a thing for Lovegood, but if he could tease Draco about Granger, then it was fair game. They settled at their usual table, and Draco tried to keep his gaze down, tried not to look for her in the dining room. Blaze slapped him on the back. Don't get so worked up, she won't even remember you. He didn't react. Blaze thought that was a good thing. It wasn't. But then something tugged his eyes up against his will, and there she was across the dining hall, her gaze scanning the faces of its occupants. At first, her eyes slid right over him, but then they came back. He wasn't prepared, and it took him a moment to recover, to force his well-practiced scowl onto his features. A chill ran down his spine as he detected not even a trace of hatred in her hazel eyes. It had been so many years since she'd looked at him this way, with none of the disgust or malice or contempt that she normally held for him. The last time she'd looked at him like this, it was on the Hogwarts Express in their first year, when she'd asked his compartment if they'd seen a wandering toad. He'd made a stupid remark to her, and that was when the annoyance and negativity began to seep into how she looked at him. Over the years, the annoyance had turned into something much darker, much uglier, and it was his own fault. But now, she blinked at him with confusion, like she didn't understand why he would scowl at her. Blaze was right, it should have been a good thing. Instead, it felt like a punch to the gut. She wasn't herself anymore. She didn't know to hate him. Ginny Weasley, who sat next to her, said something, and Granger's eyes left his face. And without her eyes to track his movement, he stood abruptly. Before Blaze could ask, he murmured, I'm not hungry, and then retreated hurriedly from the table. At the exit to the room, he couldn't help himself and his focus found her once more. She sat at a far table, the number 17 tattooed on her neck, with a smattering of people he'd known at Hogwarts, all of which who'd had their memories wiped. Romilda Vane with her signature bushy hair that resembled how Granger's had looked before fifth year, and Neville Longbottom, whose crooked teeth were flashing in a grin at the others. There was Luna Lovegood, who hadn't lost her dreamy way of speaking, and Justin Finch Fletchley, who seemed to be able to pick up conversation easily, 
even without memories or confidence to aid him. Draco shook his head and willed his feet to take him out of the dining room, out of her view in case she looked again. But why would she? She didn't know who he was. None of them knew who he was. He needed to stop thinking about their real names, lest he slip up and accidentally address them improperly. As he made his way up the grand staircase into the third floor where his childhood bedroom could offer a refuge, he felt regret like acid in his stomach. He never should have offered to train the kidnapped recruits. It was an idiotic thing to do. He'd assumed he'd be able to keep his emotions in check for the purpose of keeping an eye on Granger, but already he could feel himself coming undone at the seams. He threw open the door to his bedroom, still decorated in signature Slytherin green and silver, and beelined to his bookshelf, to his copy of Advanced Potion Making. After ensuring that the door to the room was locked, he pulled the book from the shelf and opened it to the first page at his desk. With his wand, he drew a small cut on his finger and pressed the bead of blood at the skin to the book, feeling a familiar hum of magic come alive in the pages. He'd done some careful and heavily researched blood magic to charm the book so that communication could only open in the pages if a series of steps were performed. First was presenting his blood, and next was casting a bout of seemingly innocuous spells that nobody could possibly guess would be used to validate the user's identity. After that, any message written to him would appear, and any message he wrote would be transmitted to the sister book to his own. Like always, he waited a few moments for anything to appear on the page. But like the last several months, there was nothing. The blasted order hadn't communicated with him in months, though he'd written to them almost every day. Maybe the only people who knew about his work with them had died at the Battle of Hogwarts. Maybe their similarly charmed communication book had been lost, or burned, or destroyed. This didn't stop him from locating a quill and an ink pot, and writing a message anyways. It was practically the same message he'd been writing every day since he'd learned that Granger had been part of the group captured. If you see this message, launch an attack at the manor. Save them. He neglected to mention that the only person of the group that he really cared about saving was her, but he had a feeling that it didn't need to be said. When he'd first come to Remus Lupin to offer himself as a double agent, the werewolf wizard had asked permission to use legilimency on him to distinguish his true intentions. Who knew that Lupin was legilimens? But Drago had obliged and, for once in his life, let his mind be completely searched without hiding anything using occlumency. He'd closed his eyes while Lupin had dove into his thoughts and memories, and when Lupin had finally spoken after the minutes that they sat there, there was an odd look on his face. And Draco knew that he knew. That wasn't to say that Granger was the only reason he had joined the Order. But she was one of the reasons. Not that it really mattered now, because here she was, eating dinner in the Malfoy Manor, wearing Death Eater training clothes, thinking that the Order was the enemy and that she was fighting for the right side. And he was going to have to pretend that all of that was true, if he had any chance of saving her from all this, if he had any chance of helping them survive at all. He shut the book and deposited it back into its place on the bookshelf, then sat on the edge of his bed, feeling himself sink into the soft mattress. It took a few moments for him to regulate his breathing. In, out, in, out, just like Snape had instructed him back when he'd first learned occlumency. Then he let his eyes fall shut, and a version of his bedroom appeared in his mind. It looked just as it did now, even down to the rumpled sheets on the bed from how he'd slept last night. 
The door to his mental bedroom opened, and his heart stopped. Granger stood in the doorway, her seventeen tattoo so dark on her tanned skin. His breath caught in his throat as she closed the door behind her and leaned against it, those hazel eyes watching him wordlessly. Her dark curls fell across her collarbones, and he held his breath, feeling the blood rushing in his ears as she tucked a lock of hair behind her ear and took a step towards him, towards the bed. He tightened his grip on the mattress where he sat and willed himself to remember what Snape had taught him all those years ago. She needed to be returned to her box, out of sight and out of mind. But he couldn't manage to lift his wand and cast the spell that would banish her. So instead, he watched as she moved closer and closer until she was standing right in front of him, her face above him, and he had to look up to her. He wasn't sure if in real life her clothes fit like this, but in his mental bedroom, her training clothes were tight enough that he could see every curve of her body. He had to stop himself from tracing her figure with his fingertips. She reached out a tentative hand, and he bit his tongue hard enough that he tasted blood, while her index finger drew a straight line down his face starting at his hairline and ending at his chin. He almost shuddered when she reached his lips, but something stopped him. He couldn't feel it. He was watching her finger move, but he couldn't feel it on his face. And that was enough to snap him out of it. Depulso, he said quietly. A drawer in his desk creaked open, and out of it levitated a small circular box, the same shade of hazel as her eyes. It looked almost like a candle, but it was empty of all wax. All it contained were thoughts of Granger. The version of her that stood in front of him backed away, and she was sucked into the box like a genie in a magic lamp. Then the box closed, fell back into the drawer, and Draco let out a deep breath. When he finally opened his eyes and found himself back in his physical bedroom, he realized that the blood he'd tasted from biting his tongue was real. He couldn't help himself from drawing the same line she had on his face. Couldn't help but wonder what it would feel like if it were her delicate hand and not his shaking one.